Hello, and welcome to the Not So Secret Sauce podcast, where we open source the secret sauce. My name is Kevin Odongo, Senior Software Architect at Founders Factory Africa. Glad you could join us. On this edition of the Not So Secret Sauce podcast, we are exploring the subject of how founders get their product to market and iterate at speed to find product market fit. One episode alone is not enough time to explore this critical subject. So in a first for this platform, we are doing a two-part series that splits the founder journey into those wanting to get their MVP to market and those who are already in market and looking for ways to validate at speed. The person who will help me unpack the founder get to market slash validation journey in this two-part series is Fabian Elliott, African startup and venture capital business development manager at Google Cloud for Startups. Welcome to the Not So Secret Sauce podcast. How are you? Doing great, Kevin. Excited for the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us and having having spoken quite a bit off air before today. I'm looking forward to our discussion. But before we get there, we're going to have a quick lighting round where you give your hot take on five subjects. As soon as you hear it, give me your first out of the oven reaction to it. Are you ready? I'm a little nervous, but let's do it. Let's see what happens. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> first up, Twitter becoming X. Oh, man, it's trash. I'm not a fan of it, man. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. But yeah, just even selecting X, like the rebranding would have been cool, like rebranding it to something. But the the X thing, I don't know. I I, I haven't been able to wrap, wrap my mind around it yet. Bitcoin prizes in 2030. Yeah, I, I got to be honest. I never got on the Bitcoin train <laughs> personally <laughs> myself. So what the the macroeconomic environment has been, I, I'm not even comfortable giving a guess there. All right. The future of cloud computing? Generative AI. It's just seeping into to every area as far as, as generative AI grows and becomes more critical. You know, the compute power that's required and the, the special, you know, chips and machine types that are needed. I think just from so many different angles, it's really going to determine the the future. And what about artificial intelligence regulations? Oh, that's very well connected to the previous one. True, true. That is going to be a, I feel like it's going to be a moving target. And that, you know, one of the big pieces is just training, getting policymakers and others, helping them get a fundamental understanding of, of what's going on. And then I think there's, there's just going to have to be a lot of ownership on the, more ownership than ever on the actual engineering tech innovation side of the house to to be responsible. So I think they're going to have to come together from just a trust standpoint and people doing the right things that are innovating the technology and then also the policy and governance piece and, you know, meet in the middle to make sure everyone's protected. The last question, I think we might open a bigger debate, remote versus in-office work. To be, I, I feel like a fence sitter a bit on this topic because... I think some form of hybrid is, you know, the way to go. Like, I definitely don't see a need for almost anyone unless like your day-to-day responsibilities absolutely require it to have to be in the office every single day, especially in our in our world. You know, I do see the value of those coffee coffee station conversations that happen or, you know, some of those in so where some of the magic happens for those in-person 
engagements that occur outside of a Zoom or a Google Meets, you know, call. So yeah, I'd say some form of hybrid is definitely the way to go. Thank you so much, Fabian, for humoring us and being a good spot. From here, we'll start the discussion. The topic for today is navigating technical debt in early startup, balancing speed and quality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The first question I'll put out there is to start from the beginning. What are the core pieces of technical infrastructure founders should have in place when going to market regardless of their offering? Regardless of the offering, you know, is quite broad, but in my opinion, you know, if you've developed an application that's, you know, core to your business and you've gotten into production and you have customers using it, then there are just some 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 critical items, no matter how lean you're you're approaching it, there are some some critical items that just, in my opinion, need to be in place. You know, number one is your, you know, whatever your your computing power is going to be, your compute, you know, preferably something that's serverless allows you to auto scale because the scenario that you always have to have in your mind is that what if you do have wild success? What if you do, if you happen to create the next Pokemon Go, you know, are you set up if it goes viral, takes off in some unbelievable, unfathomable way, will your infrastructure, you know, be able to auto scale and, and keep up with it? So I think it never hurts to, well, I think it's, it's, you know, being able to to bump your head on the stars of you know what the possibilities could be, you, sh- you should prepare for it. So definitely the, on the compute side, of course, you have to have some storage to complement that. But then another super critical piece is your analytics. And, you know, beyond just, say, your traffic and site type of analytics, analytics on your application as well, so that you have the right telemetry to be able to you know, understand and evaluate the, the performance and, you know, is it working the way it should? Do you have the right alert set up and all these other things? So analytics is is key. But then the last one that you probably don't want to spend too much time on or in the early days, but it's something to, to give some thought on is, of course, just the whole networking and security component. And, you know, if you if you're following some of these these steps and you know, say on a compute, auto scale, serverless, those type of things, you're likely working with a cloud provider. And the good thing is there's a lot of kind of built in tools there where you wouldn't have to give too much thought, but you need to give it some thought and you know be able to set up different things. For example, for Google Cloud, we have you know security command center that can help protect you against DDoS attacks and all these other types of things. So those would be the, the main things, you know, compute, storage, analytics, and then you know, not forgetting the networking security piece. I think one common mistake that many founders make is rushing to build all that from scratch, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. trying to reinvent the wheel. And uh, I believe leveraging managed services like cloud services, mm-hmm. you know, or like no-code serv- tools will bundle for you all the services that you've listed down. Yep. Something like Bubble exactly. has compute already there, storage there, analytics for you, exactly. network security has been done. So I think it's a good way for founders to to leverage these managed services to to ensure that they can have a shorter time to, to the market. Yeah, you make me think too, Kevin, like I think especially for the non-technical founders, you know, whether they're CEO or whatever role they have, I would encourage them to like, to be cautious of your CTO, or your developer, your engineer, like you're saying, Kevin, the reason why they don't make that mistake just for for the sake of it, 
they like to build, <laughs> you know, they like to get their hands dirty and do certain <laughs> things. So like that's their mindset. So I would always encourage I'm a non-technical founder or CEO. If it's seeming like, like try to raise your high level awareness of some of these things we're talking about, like serverless and the fact that so many providers are making developers worlds easier and easier. So when your developer, or your CTO are describing something to you, always push on them to see if there's a simpler way to do it, you know, or if it's sounding too complicated or like, okay, this, this, it seems like this is simple, but it's going to be super complex. You know, I'd encourage non-technical founders to even brush up on some of the high level capabilities that are out there. And even if you're not able to do that, just always just try to nudge or push them a bit more on like, is there an easier way to do it? Is there a simpler way? Funny thing, you've opened the floor for the second question, which is for the founders, what are the questions that they should ask themselves when they're evaluating their technical level or for market readiness? What are the key, what are the things that they can leverage on most on the tool sides? And mm-hmm. uh, how can they ensure that their cost has been maintained into a very minimal spend? A couple of questions that come to mind for me is one is performance, you know, and latency and those type of things. And that requires answering the question of where will most of your users be, you know, for the application or the solution you're developing? Are your users going to be, so say, for example, if you're in Kenya, like you, Kevin, like are, are most of your users going to be in East Africa? Are they going to be mostly in Africa? Is it a global app where you can be getting users from across the world? Those are all important questions to understand is where your users are located, because then you need to figure out, okay, is, are we technically set up to deliver a good experience? Or, you know, I'm, I'm developing my product in, I'm a Kenyan founder, but it's a global solution and someone from Hawaii is going to be using it. Are they going to have to wait 10 seconds for it to load? You know, uh, those type of, you know, performance, you know, type of of considerations are really important. So I, I, I think it comes back to just one of the critical things is having some type of forecast or hypothesis on where your users are located. And especially if they're going to be global, then you have to look at different type of, you know, content delivery networks, CDN solutions, caching solutions, where you can help to create an, an experience, a good experience for them in an affordable way is is another one. I, I talked about it a little earlier, but, you know, another important thing for market readiness is, you know, we don't like to think about it, but how quick are you able to recover from a potential issue or if your application goes down? And so that goes back to the the point I was making a bit earlier around how important then things like telemetry become of, you know, how are you monitoring the health of your application? Do you have alert set up for when things hit certain thresholds? Do you, what, you know, what type of processes do you have in place that, you know, something were to happen, you can get back online very quickly. So, and that, that impacts the user experience as well. So a lot of how I think about it with, you know, are you market ready is how ready are you to provide a user experience, a, a good user experience, whether it's based on the user's location or it's based on you know, how quickly, you know, you can recover from an issue and have the insights and information you need on your app application to quickly target 
the root cause and alleviate that root cause. This brings me back to one of the founders that was trying to over-engineer their product, you know, to have that dark mode, you know, to have everything that the user might might have. But to add on the points that you've, you've listed down, three things for me that comes into my mind is analytics. Yes. Is, uh, yep. How will you know the user behavior of the customers that exactly. are using your applications? Yep. The other thing is reliability. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, reliability touches with your issue or when you talked about issue issue resolution. So yep. how reliable is your system? You know, right. how how do you ensure that your system is not down when you take it to the customers? Because mm-hmm. customers want a reliable system. Exactly. And then customer support, you know, mm. how are you going to support your customer when you put the product in their hands? Yep. Are you going to have like a contact page where they can reach you directly? Are you going to use Zendex, third-party products, you mm-hmm. know? And these are the key things that I feel like when a founder can see how the people using there are providing mm-hmm. that support and ensure it's reliable. I think you can capture your your customers from the get-go. And it's an interesting conversation just to look at it on the, on the startups that has come through Founders Factory specifically. Mm-hmm. But uh, before I go to the next question, I wanted to ask you something because you're coming from Google. Mm-hmm. What... What tool can can founders leverage to to provision infrastructure, Google infrastructure? Because AWS provide the Amplify cloud formation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and different and third party products that you can use. But generally, what's the easiest tool that a founder can use yeah. to provision infrastructure at Google? The the go to kind of serverless solution to be able to provision, especially with all the qualities we've kind of mentioned, is really uh, what we call cloud run uh, which is the f- is really the future some folks might be familiar with app engine which has been out for quite a while however cloud run is really the the future um so like even from our side a lot of our you know investment in the tool and things of that nature it, it's shifting or it it's shifted substantially away from App Engine, you know, towards Cloud Run. So we're encouraging a lot of our, our customers to to move in that direction. And, you know, the the big difference is really that Cloud Run just provides just a bit more flexibility. And just from a serverless standpoint, like I mentioned, you know, App Engine has been around, what, what seven, eight years? Like it's been around quite a while. And imagine if, you know, say you have App Engine that was built and it's been improved and iterated and improved, but then Cloud Run, say a couple of years ago, you were able to just almost leapfrog and start fresh with a a new generation of serverless technology and solutions. And so, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd recommend folks to take a look at at Cloud Run for sure. And in terms of cost, because many founders when they think about <laughs> that uh, aspect of cloud, mm-hmm. do they do? Should they be worried that when they touch Cloud Run or app or any of the services, they've already started being built by Google Google Cloud Platform? Yeah, so that is the thing. Like, um, like I say, nothing's free in this world, <laughs> and there's trade offs with everything. And so, you know, one of the trade offs with serverless is it, it is going to be a bit more expensive than if you were, you know, using infrastructure as a service and 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 managing, you know, the VMs yourself and and things of that nature. So. Uh, just off the bat, that is a consideration. So when when you talk about the cost, though, one of the things that uh, we're really proud about is how the tooling and the lengths that we've gone through to make it easier 
to control your costs and limit runaway costs. So, you know, not only be able to set up budget alerts and those type of things for when it's going higher than you'd want to, but then you can also, you know, cap your spin. So like you, it, we don't, we won't spend over a certain amount. So there's, there's different controls and even be able to analyze your costs and dump your billing data into big query, our data warehouse tool to be able to do, you know, complex analysis and dashboarding and, and looker our data analytics visualization tool. So there's a lot of out of the box ways to, to manage it, but then that's just managing it as far as, you know, handling the cost itself, you know, Kevin, as you're aware of, and you know, a lot of folks are, this is an important question you asked because cloud expenses are typically the second largest line item, you know, for most tech startups. And so how we also try to alleviate that is through our Google cloud for startup or our Google for startups cloud program, where we provide, you know, credits, tech support, business support, and, you know, other items. So what you'd be able to get out of that program is not only credits to cover those costs, offset those costs, but then also access to technical support to make sure that you're, you're architecting your solution in the most co cost-friendly way as well. Before uh, before we finish, uh, I'll try and come back to the benefits of, of founders accessing the Google Google for, for startups credits and, and support from you guys. And uh, my next question is, is, what are some of the red flags founders should look for that indicate their product isn't quite ready for market entry? When it comes to that piece, I think, and it's, it's funny, uh, and I think it's it's appropriate, is that, I feel like a lot of our our thoughts and ideas we're exchanging, Kevin, it comes back to the the experience, the customer experience and, you know, how you ensure that. So, you know, one thing that is always an important factor is, you know, the team and personnel, especially your technical team and personnel. And, you know, this is probably targeted more at non-technical founders as well, is that, you know, when you're going to market with your solution, you know, sometimes... I've heard horror stories about someone's been outsourcing, you know, all their engineering or, you know, they don't have a technical co-founder and then boom, something goes wrong or, you know, you're not able to be as nimble and make changes or do different things. So, you know, to me, that's, not, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You know, if you don't have a technical co-founder or someone else that's you know, you can really trust and is highly reliable and kind of dedicated to the business like yourself. But to me, that's that's always a, a, a pretty big concern. And I know that's also a thing that a lot of investors look at as well is, you know, they, they look at the team. And if there's no one technical on the core team, then that's a red flag to investors. And it's for a reason. And so, you know, in the early days, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But, you know, that's always uh, personnel and who you have in your corner from a technical perspective to me is always uh, critical. Oh, Fabian, this question hits home because <laughs> I think more so if you're an engineer, I believe we'll be, we've built so many products ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, because once you start touching line of code, writing line of code, the first thing that comes to your mind is you want to, you want to build the next Facebook, you want to build the next WhatsApp application. And working with Founders Factory has really exposed me specifically just to see how the red flags that founders are, and the mistakes that founders are doing outside here. And the first thing that comes 
to my mind, and I think we've seen it a lot, is market fit and certainty. Mm-hmm. Most of the founders tra- start building product without any customer feedback or insight. <laughs> they yeah, build yeah. the products in their own space and area, and they don't know who is going to use that application. Kevin, let me ask you, that. Why, why do you building. think that is? Because like when we talk about it, it seems so logical you know, to like, maybe I should at least have one conversation with a potential customer before I go and build something. But like, from your experience, why do you think that happens? Like, why do you think they, that's such a common mistake? Because, you know, Fabian, the the way some of these products uh, behave in the European context, so in the American Mm -hmm. setup or in Australian setup, Mm -hmm. is totally different with the way African setup is. Mm -hmm. Most people, to make them use your application, I won't say there's low-tech adoption, but I'll just say the kind of customer in African setup behave differently Mm. with other areas. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're trying to build something for the African ecosystem before even you think about scaling out there to other other market zones, is just to try and find one customer and talk to him. Mm -hmm. Of -hmm. course, the problem problem you're trying to solve might be there and you feel that that problem should be solved with the the idea or with the solution that you've come up with. But generally, the disconnect between you and the customer is is one thing that we've realized many founders are having. Mm-hmm. And that's why we came up with the traction framework. Yeah. I think if you've seen it, you see the first uh, lever is, you know, customer discovery. You know, you need to you need to you need to gather those insights and figure out if really this solution that you're coming up with, it might have been successful in London, but is it successful in African setup? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're, you're launching it in Joburg as your first market. Is it going to succeed? So those are the kind of questions <laughs> that I feel like if the founders yeah. are, if the founders not answered them then that's a red flag for me. And I think for the whole team at the studio is one thing that we've seen is really hurting many businesses outside here. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, what I've seen of what drives that behavior of not taking the time is, you know, every entrepreneur has to be overconfident. That's just, you know, point blank. But, you know, it has some of his risk and blind spots where, you know, they... They, they, you, you can get into a string of assumptions, you know, that it's not just one assumption that is likely to make or break you. It's when you get into a string of making, you know, different assumptions and not validating them. And, 100%. and I think the other thing is too, and then this leads to a broader issue is some folks aren't, they don't have close proximity to customers. Like they might be trying to serve a person. They see a problem. They might be trying to serve a person. They might be just be going off their own personal experience, but they might not feel like they have ready access to find a customer to talk to. But then that, I know we're going to get into it, but then that becomes an issue with your go-to-market success as well. So it's like, if you can't even find one or two customers to talk to to inform your solution, how are you going to sell it to them or, you know, bring on a thousand customers, <laughs> you know, if, if just you're not even able to reach one or two. It's it's a hundred percent and brings me to the next. Uh, I'll say, I think it's a, it has worked for some businesses like Loom. I think Loom just dropped, came into the market without doing a lot of customer discovery. I don't know if they did, but when I was reading their, their history or their journey, I realized it was just one of the products that just came into the market. And mm. I think they managed to get their customer base. The other thing that I think is affecting many of our founders is they start building without a customer, but they're already thinking about scale. 
already <laughs> thinking about serving 1,000. They're going to get 1,000 traffic in their site. Mm -hmm. They need to have 10 servers running on, on. And that's why I think many founders try, tend to go the coding way and avoid no code because they feel like no code will not scale. But you don't have a customer. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Let me hear your opinion about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's... It's kind of like if you have a significant other and how I think about low code versus, you know, hands on and like you're building everything out yourself. Like, let's say you either have a significant other, you're going on a date with somebody and you decide, OK, I'm going to cook them this elaborate seven course meal from my house, <laughs> you know, like without <laughs> talking to them at all. You don't know what they're allergic to. You don't know what they like, what they don't like, what you just I, I'm, I'm going to just you know make this. You know, versus it, then you've put all that effort into it and then they might not end up liking it versus say you order, you ordered in, you did Uber Eats or you had something delivered. They might not end up liking it either, but then you spent a lot less time and effort <laughs> on that same that outcome, you know? So to me, and, and I always remember the former head of engineering for Google in, in the Chicago office, someone who's written many a code, has led teams that have written lines, so many, you know, countless amounts of code. He even told me like, man, if you can build a solution without having to write a, a single line of code, don't do it. <laughs> and this is from someone who's more than proficient at writing code himself and leading huge teams to write code. And so that always stuck with me. I'm like, okay, someone with that much capability avoids writing code <laughs> as much as they can. <laughs> then we most of us probably have no business you know especially leading with that unless it's absolutely necessary so that that's always stuck out to me no that's a, that's a good one that's a good one and it, it's i think we should uh we should frame that and and try and lead away <laughs> our founders away from from starting because you know code when you start from the onset mm -hmm. it needs a lot of you need to assemble a team mm -hmm. You need to manage your infrastructure. You need to figure out mm -hmm. where you're deploying. Mm -hmm. You need to figure out so many things. And the complexity starts uh, creeping in. Yeah. And uh, it becomes so overwhelming as you as you go down the line. Mm -hmm. Let me throw that the next question to you, mm -hmm. Fabian. Mm -hmm. Is there a good time to go to market as an early-stage tech startup? I think the timing of when you're trying to go to market is not something that should be a, a huge focus. You know, I think it's a, like the actual timing, like whether I'm gonna do it this quarter or next year, or, you know, if you're trying to align it with, you know, huge macro, macroeconomic events that no one has control over, I think it, it can do more harm than good or keep you from just getting going. And so from a, a timing perspective, I think it's more so on the founder side and some of the kind of check marks we've talked about and then however much time it takes to get some of those key things in place, then I think that's the right time, you know, to, to get in, you know, especially just trying to get, get into the market and see what's going on. Now, when, when you're, you know, say r raising funds or looking for investors, then yeah, there's definitely some good tougher time. There's always going to be tough, but there's some, you know, super tough times, you know, to, to say embark on that that can be considered. But yeah, if you're just trying to get to market, as long as you can check some of the boxes that we recommend and we've talked about, I think anytime's a good time. 
Oh, great. To add on that, it's it's one of the questions that been mm. that I've been fighting to just try and answer because let me put it into picture this way, because an idea that you have, more so if it's not a new idea in the market, there's somebody else who is, of course, thinking about doing the same idea as you're doing. And the next question that comes to my mind before you start even going deeper is, is there a market for it? Who's your customer? Who do you think can can just try and use mm-hmm. your product? And once you can answer that two questions, the last question before you even go to the market is, can they pay? Because yeah, if they can't yeah. pay, then you'll be building a free business for them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can answer those two questions and the earlier you get that signal, I believe... That's why the tools that you leverage for you to get them something on there or in front of them to try it out, and then you can iterate from there is key thing to define or to define how how quick you go or what time is good for you to get to the market. Because if you have a ready customer, assuming we are building, assuming me and you right now, we start building a, a doctor and appointment application and mm-hmm. we need a doctor who can use this application to manage the patients, and we need the patients to be booking their booking for that doctor or for the doctors. So we have so many doctors around Joburg and we want to build this product for them. But if we build it and put it out there, we don't know which doctor because they, first of all, our pricing might be over the roof. We don't know even if yeah. they're going to use it. But if yeah. we can find one one doctor in Santon who has 10 patients and they can use that product, I think getting it quicker for them to start using it will will be a very good time to get to market for a startup. Now, I agree. And you, you, bring, you bring up a good point. And I, I want to tie it to timing. It's just, I'd, I'd say it's more about conditions, you know, or you know, conditions, external conditions, and then conditions, you know, within your, your startup. But I, I think one thing that not a lot of startups fully understand all the time is, like you said, how competitive it is. Like whatever idea you have, if someone's not if someone's not already doing it, or ten people aren't already doing it, then yeah, someone's about to do it. <laughs> it, it because what I've started to realize more, as you know, I've gotten into angel investing myself, and I'm seeing more deals. And then you know, when I help review applications to you know Google accelerators, you start seeing like, man, just in this one. Uh, application cycle, there's like 10 companies doing the exact same thing. And what that brings me to, though, is your differentiation becomes even more critical and understanding your competitors and what's going to be your superpower, what's going to be your competitive advantage, what's going to help you differentiate and really serve customers better than the others. Kind of like if you think about sports teams, you know, they're all just like you're all like if if you have 10 companies competing for the same customer base, it's almost like you have 10 sports teams in a league competing for the cup or whatever the championship is. Like you need to know your competition really well. How's your team stack? Like you can, you can humanize it from viewing it from that competitive, you know, you know pers- perspective. Cause sometimes folks just, it's not only one thing to have a good idea or see an opportunity and then to be really passionate about it. You got to really think about, what is your superpower? Like, what do you have that you're bringing to the table or can bring to the table that's really going to help you help your company succeed? 
100% Fabian. What's your uniqueness? What's uh, and it just brings me back to the current AI AI since ChatGPT launched. Mm-hmm, How many mm-hmm. products have been built around ChatGPT just trying to you know, try to bring it for you in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's just running chat DPT under the hood. But some of them have been successful. And it's it's just been interesting how people are really trying to get those products out, out there in the hands of the customers. Uh, what's your take on that? You bring up a really good point. And I think, I guess how I see it unfolding is the, the Gen AI adoption for traditional companies and even startups, in my opinion, Folks are really struggling to figure it out, <laughs> you know, especially in, in across Africa where, you know, even when you give give it to them on a silver platter of like, these are the use cases. Do you have use cases? And then this is what you can use to take advantage of the use case. It's just something, the adoption, something just isn't clicking. So I think that in the short term, whoever is getting it right, like whoever is, you know, taking some of the low hanging fruit and, you know, you know, building a quick chat bot or enterprise search experience, they, they're going to have an, an incredible advantage in the short term. And then it'll, it'll, it'll gradually mature and then it will become more about differentiation. I kind of liken it to, you know, you, you think about websites, like right now it's standard on a website where, you know, you should be able to do a contact me form or email someone from the website or, there's certain things that we've come to expect to be able to do on a website that maybe 10 years ago you wouldn't have expected it. And so what I see in the future is that everyone's got in, in 10 years, everyone's going to expect you to have a super smart chat bot <laughs> on your webpage. You know, they don't even have to email you. They'll just get all their questions answered from, uh, you know, a llama powered, you know, chat bot, or, you know, or things like that. And so, you know, like I said, I think the early movers, they're going to have a lot of value and really dominate. And then when everyone else sees how easy it is, it'll catch up. And then it really will become more about differentiating, maybe at more fundamental levels. I think we can continue, we, we can keep talking about this question, but let me go to the final question for this podcast. And, and one thing that uh, this last question, it, it it brings a lot of memories because I've done a lot of consultancy and one thing that I've I've seen in so many of these startup beat any level is technical debt. And yeah, and yeah. technical debt is one question that I think we should talk about before this conversation ends is at what point should early stage founders think about technical debt if at all before going to market? It's such a delicate balance between you know some of the the parameter the factors we talk about is you know, speed and then, you know, cost and then say reliability or some, some of those other aspects. And so I think similar to the theme that we've been talking about is really important. You got to get it out to your customers. You know, you got to focus on that value creating revenue driving, you know, actions and activities, and that's getting it out as fast as you can you know, managing costs as best as you can. And since some of the other factors we've, we've talked about, for me, the, the technical debt perspective is, I think the goal is you should try to follow like the best practices as much as you can. So, you know, every cloud provider, they're going to have architectural best practices and resources and things of that nature. So I think 
at the bare minimum, you know, those boxes should be checked. However, following those architectural best practices, of course, it doesn't guarantee or eliminate all types, you know, not having any technical debt. So what I would say is check that initial box of at least trying to abide by the best practices, the architectural best practices the best that you can. And then the technical debt, just don't lose sight of it, you know, stay aware of it and, you know, find a way to tackle it before it becomes too problematic. But it's always that balance between, you know, when you think about engineering time, especially like what's creating value and driving revenue and what's just more kind of maintenance or, you know, protecting revenue and figuring out what's your split going to be. Is it going to be, you know, 70% of dev time, you know, going towards, you know, the revenue generating new features, all those other things, 30% towards other, or is it going to be 90, 10, you know, and then, you know, kind of approach it that way. Uh, Because the last thing you want to do is overly focus on, you know, say you, you, you develop some phobia of technical debt (laughs) and you don't want any technical debt. And then you're over-focusing on keeping your tech technical debt at zero, but you're not, you know, doing the the value creating, revenue generating activities too. Yeah, it's a very delicate uh, balance for the founders because I'll say this, Fabian. I think that's why for me, I'll still lean on no code for the early stage yep. business. And then when you're still trying to validate your business idea, I don't think you should write any code because mm-hmm. yeah, when you start running writing code from onset, the problem is. Here's another factor that really affects many startups is they try to leverage junior developers because, you know, they're trying to cut cost, but they're trying to yep. build a product. Yep. Yep. Now, this junior developer, of course, will try and build you something because also they need that exposure to start working for them mm-hmm. to be able to understand how this thing works. And they mm-hmm. build it on the fly. You know, it's YouTube here and they're building it Yeah, for they're you. junior for a reason, right? <laughs> they're junior for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now when, when you look at it, it, it becomes, you start picking technical debt at an early stage. You still even don't have a customer. Now you launch the product, you, you're here, you're trying to churn new features, you're trying to balance, you're hiring the first engineer you started with. He's the only one who knows how the code is structured. There's no documentation. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. have to keep him. And now when you keep him, the longer he, he stays the in the, the company, kingdom. he feels like he yep. wants to grow to a senior. The heavy burden that he has put on the, on, on the tech is is really heavy or heavy for the business. But by the, by the time they start trying to figure out to restructure, yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be expensive down the line. <laughs> I think you're making a so, good point because what people need to understand is that this phrase of technical debt isn't just song and dance debt, like any debt, just like money debt, it'll squeeze the life out of you. Just like right now, I believe, you know, South Africa as a government, a lot of countries as a government, I know South Africa is so badly in debt that most of the tax revenue and other things that are coming in is going to pay those minimum payments on debt, you know, and then you can't invest in other things. And I think to bring it full circle for people to really understand, especially non-technical founders is if you're not careful, that technical debt can literally strangle you just like household economic money debt can literally just tangle, like ruin your life and, you know, just, you know, put you in in an incredible bind. Like that's, there's a reason why it's called technical debt 
and the word debt is used. I'll throw this to you because you talked about something serverless. I'm I'm an I'm an advocate of serverless. I love serverless so much, yeah. and uh, I think spinning out things with Lambda, DynamoDB, and and your API Gateway gives you. I'm an AWS. I'm sorry, Fabian. To it. Mm. No, we've talked about <laughs> it. We've talked about it. Yeah. yeah. Now the thing, the, the the thing that is really delicate about this question that I'll ask you is, when you do serverless, and serverless really most people lean on NoSQL databases, mm-hmm. but the problem with NoSQL databases, most of these companies try to make NoSQL database behave like relation database. And uh, yep, I'm sorry yep. to say this. I've seen, I've seen some of the startups that started very well at with with serverless, but are really struggling to get good tech to keep doing the right thing with serverless because you know serverless can get complex. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. easy to start with it, but if you don't have the right people who understand how to work with serverless at scale, it can, even Lambda at scale it can mm-hmm. really disappoint. It can be a a pain in the ass. So. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is one topic that how to balance starting with serverless, at what stage do you move away from serverless? At what stage do you do this? So it's, it's let me hear your, your point about yeah. that. I'm always so curious every time we're like, when I'm working with a customer that isn't using serverless, you know, and there some some customers are so old school, like, they're not even using Kubernetes. They're using, you know, they want full control over their infrastructure. And, you know, it's always curious to hear the reasons, you know, why. Normally it's maybe they have, you know, especially if they're a traditional customer, which wouldn't, well, traditional enterprise customer wouldn't apply to like a digital native. Like maybe they had a certain setup in their their data center or on-prem, and then they need a certain hardened VM that, you know, they need some special controls or, you know, things of that nature. But it's always interesting, like, you know, the the reasoning. To be honest, like I haven't seen many customers, you know, start on serverless and then end up reversing <laughs> to saying, hey, we want we want to focus on DevOps. We want to manage our infrastructure, you know, more and more. And I, I think that's uh, it has a lot to do with not only the the extra effort that it comes with, but then, as you know, Kevin, that's a whole that's a whole different skill set as well. Like you might have a a developer that can just write the code, slap it in the serverless, and you you move on. But that's a whole other skill set of someone that's going to be managing, like a DevOps person that's going to manage the the infrastructure. So yeah, to be honest, I, and and a lot of another thing to remember too is you know it's an application by application basis. You know, some customers might use serverless for some applications and for another application, they, they want to go a different route. So, yeah, there's a lot of factors that, that kind of come into it. A big thank you to Fabian for joining today, though I'm happy to say we will see you again. Given your experience working with startup at an enterprise level, I'm very much looking forward to next month's episode where we speak about the founders already in market that are wanting to validate quickly. And shout out to everyone listening. Till next time, keep well and iterate.